Hey everyone, and welcome to the Homefulness Podcast, a conversation dedicated to making home in our multifaceted culture of displacement. I'm your host, Andrew Stevens-Rennie. And like, this is really where the rubber hits the road with residential schools, especially, that the, um, the active attempts to disconnect Indigenous people from our traditional spiritualities as a part of the civilizing drive of the church is a big component of what contributes to a lack of homefulness. In today's episode, we hear from the Reverend Dr. Carmen Lansdowne, Executive Director of First United Church's Social Housing Society, located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. This is Carmen's talk from the Beyond Housing to Homefulness Symposium, entitled Building for Indigenous Homefulness. Hi, I'm Carmen. Thank you for the introduction, Andrew. Um, my traditional name is Gagwe'ilok and Hesokwala, which means dear one. And I've also been adopted by my um, a, my surrogate brother, Rick Johnson, who's hereditary chief from Guilford Island. And my name in Kwakwala is Kwisawak, which means moon who travels to many places far away. Um, I may have been on the governing board, board of the World Council of Churches and was traveling a lot internationally when he gave me that name as an adult. Um, I live and work and play on the traditional ancestral and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations, and um, in part by choice and in part due to the generational displacement of my family from traditional historic territories and the lack of economic opportunity and community there. And um, I've started to claim that part too because I think um, it plays into this idea of homefulness because I think it ties so deeply to, um, you know, what is wrong with our society and it's like this culture of displacement and lack of attachment to the, to the physical places that we live in. And I think that there is something very spiritual about our ties to specific pieces of land that we have somehow lost touch with. Um, you know, in Celtic spirituality, there's this idea of the thin spaces. And I think, for sure, those exist just more spiritually and broadly um, in the world. And uh, my assumption is that uh, those places are also tied to the relationship between the genes of our bodies and the lands where we are from. Um, I had the experience of attending the um, University of Lethbridge Graduate Studies Conference in Religion when the American Academy of Religion Western Region was meeting in Lethbridge when I was doing my internship in the United Church. And um, there was a young man who was um, Blackfoot by birth and had been adopted at birth by a non-Indigenous family in Victoria, BC. Grew up in Victoria, uh, went to the University of Victoria, and his um, time in Lethbridge at the conference was his first time being in, like, the traditional homelands of the Blackfoot. And he said to me, Carmen, you know, like in my head, I know that my family loves me. I have my whole circle of support and my friends and my family and my education. Everything I know is in Victoria. And yet every fiber of my being is saying, just go lie down in the grass. <laughs> you know, and um, my dad is, uh, you know, third generation settler of British descent. Um his people were traditionally from Bath and Bristol in England. And um, the first time I went to that area of England, I just thought like, oh, I'm home. Like this is my other home. 
And I've never, I mean, I've traveled many, many places in the world, and the only three places that feel like that to me are in Nangis traditional territory, where my dad and my grandfather and I were all born, um, in Heltzik territory, where my mother was born, and in Bath and Bristol. I've loved being in many other places in the world, but those three places just somehow like call to something in my body, like I am home when I'm in this land. And so um, I think it's important to name where we are displaced from, even if that's by choice. And, uh, and I continue to do that. Um, so this beautiful rendering that you see on the screen is um, a projection of what we anticipate our new building is going to be. Andrew uh, alluded to a redevelopment of our church property. And you can see sort of the difference between the bottom four floors and the top seven floors. Um, and the bottom four floors are going to be the new church. It's going to almost triple our square footage for our outreach ministry that we do um, and preserving the sacred space that we have and the community assets that we offer to the community around us. Um, knowing that we have no idea what the next 60 to 100 years of our ministry will look like. And so we've tried to future-proof as much like, um, you know, preserving sacred space and a chapel um, that is culturally accessible to uh, non-Christian folks who access our services, but also um, lots of multi-purpose space um, and community accessible space in the building. Um, and then we're partnering with Lima Native Housing Society to operate seven floors of non-market secured Indigenous rentals. And um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but um, this is sort of like the goal that by December of 2023, this building will no longer be a rendering, but be a reality. And um, I think in, before I can talk about building for Indigenous homelessness, I need to talk about what do I mean by Indigenous homelessness. Um, so I don't know if uh, many of you know about the Homeless Hub, like the, the Homeless Observatory or Homeless Hub at the University of York. Um, they have a really great website. They do a lot of um, fantastic research on homelessness in Canada, um, lots of interesting papers. And in 2017, um, Jesse Thistle, who many of you will know from his from his his uh, bestseller book from the ashes, uh, was the indigenous scholar in residence at Homeless Hub, and he worked with um, the Homeless Observatory to define indigenous homelessness. Um, and you can download the full report; it's you know several dozen pages long, um, but it basically talks about the the work that. Um, that they did in consulting with um, homeless, with indigenous people all across Canada around like what are the things that um, cause, are the causes and experiences of indigenous homelessness in Canada. And um, at the outset of the report, uh, he said like Canadians must finally agree on some difficult truths. Indigenous, one, indigenous people do not choose to be homeless. Uh, two, the experience is negative, stressful and traumatic. Three, homelessness itself forces a disproportionate number of Indigenous people into activities deemed criminal by the state. And four, the higher mortality rate in First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities has been ignored for too long. Um, and that was sort of the preface for it. And the reason why I want to um, start with that context um, is in part because, you know, this is the challenge that we have with the church. It's 60 years old. It was built in 1965. There's a time capsule somewhere in the cornerstone that I'm really, really looking forward to when we deconstruct it. 
Um, but for uh, it, it's the one, two, three, fourth building at First United Church. We had two um, two iterations of First Presbyterian Church on East Cordova Street uh, in the 1800s, and then in 1893, um, they outgrew their second church building and they bought this church on uh, this space on the corner of Hastings and Gore. They built another sort of Victorian traditional Presbyterian church there. Uh, it outgrew its useful life um, in the early 1960s. Uh, by then, First Presbyterian had become First United, and um, this church was built in 1965. So for over 135 years, we've responded to the needs of our community in really innovative ways. But right now, that looks like um, trying to run social services out of a building that is designed for mid-century worship, um, which is not a recipe for like a great space. Um, and the building has really reached the end of its useful life. Um, we wanted to redevelop our space because we believe that people deserve the dignity and care that safe purpose-built space provides. And that we're also going to be part of a community-led community um, rejuvenation of this area of the downtown east side that centers um, Indigenous reconciliation and healing, but also um, encourages rejuvenation rather than gentrification and displacement. And so we wanted our building to continue to be for the community who's currently here. Uh, we, we wanted to make sure that we um, were not contributing um, through our project to further housing inaffordability. And so um, my redevelopment project lead, Martha Burton, is, um, has for years and years and years been telling me form follows function. And um, the other truth about the downtown east side is that at least 9,000 people in this small, um, several block square area uh, live under the poverty line, and at least 1,300 people are experiencing homelessness on a daily basis. Um, and um, estimates from anywhere from 70 to 90% of the community experience uh, homelessness, addiction, uh, mental illness, or deep poverty, um, most of them some combination of those four. And although the Indigenous population of uh, Vancouver is around 4% in Greater Vancouver, um, the community here um, self-identifies as um, nearly 40% Indigenous. So the Indigenous racialization of all of that, like that poverty, mental illness, addiction, is really, really stark. And so um, in our most recent strategic plan, um, that the board and the senior leadership team did, we named reconciliation in action as a strategic priority. And um, we had the opportunity because all three levels of government have identified the ability to, um, or the, they have identified the um, funding and the need to address both uh, um, substandard on-reserve Indigenous housing, but also urban Indigenous housing that there, we, we were at a place where we had the opportunity to um, partner with government to create a significant amount of Indigenous urban housing um, at a really affordable rate, and um, you know, and, and have most of our house be at a housing be at a charitable rate, and so not to have to create any um, market rate housing to make the project financially sustainable. Um, so we made the decision to work on Indigenous housing. And um, I like form follows function too, because we have to look at um, what does it mean? Uh, what does homelessness mean? And what are we trying to address by building this building? Like if we are going to say form follows function, 
then how do we understand Indigenous homelessness? So going back to Jesse Thistle, um, his report identified 12 dimensions of Indigenous homelessness. Um, and I think this is like a really good intersection for this, um, this concept of homefulness as being more than um, just having a secure place to sleep at night, but also um, our sense of community. And I, and I love the idea of, um, of uh, community first strategies to homeless, like solving, to working on homelessness rather than housing first. Um, so I'm just gonna go really quickly through the 12 uh, dimensions of indigenous homelessness um, as, I, as articulated by indigenous people themselves across Canada uh, through the research that Jesse and the Homeless Observatory did. The first is the historic displacement homelessness. So indigenous communities and nations made historically homeless after being actively displaced from their pre-colonial indigenous lands. Contemporary geographic separation homelessness. So an indigenous individuals or communities separation from indigenous lands after colonial control. Um, so for an example, Heistoch, um, the First Nation, uh, we have one tiny little reserve um, that was allocated when our population had been decimated by smallpox and um, influenza. Um, we believe the archaeological records and estimates that there were between 25 and 30,000 Heistoch people in the central coast of BC along 25,000 um, kilometers of uh, coastlines and fjords um, in the early 1800s. And by 1905, there was less than 400 of us left. And so that reserve that was established um, by the government of Canada and our 400 people that moved there in part to try and come together and survive disease through access to Western medicine um, was determined by colonial control and um, you know, gave up a huge amount of our traditional lands that were used to use by 14 different subtribes. There's spiritual disconnection homelessness. So an indigenous individuals or community separation from indigenous worldviews or connection to the creator or equivalent deity. And like, this is really where the rubber hits the road with residential schools, especially that the, um, the active attempts to disconnect indigenous people from our traditional spiritualities as a part of like the civilizing drive of the church um, is a big component of what contributes to a lack of homefulness or indigenous experiences of home homelessness. Mental disruption and imbalance homelessness. So mental homelessness described as an imbalance of mental faculties experienced by indigenous individuals and communities caused by colonization's entrenched social and economic marginalization of indigenous peoples. Um, one way I like to think of this is even if against all odds and overcoming poverty and um, challenging social circumstances and an on-reserve uh, isolated life, somebody manages to graduate high school and get into UVic and then the experience of going there and being like, I don't belong here. And the mental, the mental health challenges of being separated from your community and thrust into like a Euro Western Academy where like everything's foreign and you're experiencing culture shock on a daily basis. Cultural disintegration and loss homelessness. So homelessness that totally dislocates or alienates indigenous individuals and communities from their culture and from the relationship web of indigenous society known as all my relations. And I think that this is one of the areas where um, I see some fruitful relationships between 
people who are challenging the economic status quo, people who are challenging the, um, the climate crisis, and Indigenous communities who are um, working to say that our, our management of our household, the oikos, is like deeply out of balance. And I think this is one of the areas where, um, you know, we have the ability for Indigenous worldviews to sort of reclaim and to teach the wider, like wider Euro-Western society in Canada um, that all my relations is really important because it um, it creates homefulness through recognizing the interconnections and the relationships between um, between human life and the rest of the world. Overcrowding homelessness. So the number of people per dwelling in urban and rural Indigenous households that exceeds the national Canadian household average, thus contributing uh, to and creating unsafe, unhealthy, and overcrowded living spaces, in turn causing homelessness. I would say um, there's several ways that happens. One is just that um, when you have overcrowding in housing that is not well constructed in the first place, um, it becomes the definition of being hard on housing. Um, that just the upkeep and maintenance of a house where you have, um, you know, way too many occupants living is, um, and, and who don't have the means for repair and maintenance becomes really challenging. Um, it also in rental housing contributes to higher rates of eviction for Indigenous people. Um, and that sort of resistance to continued social dislocation, I think, pulls urban Indigenous people in rental housing closer together and wanting to like band together to try and survive all of the other pressures of um, poverty and dislocation and uh, ex daily experiences of racism. And so um, sometimes it's by choices of like economic survival and sometimes it's a cultural choice to try and live together. But um, the result is it can actually cause homelessness um, through either um, destroying substandard housing or um, evictions, high rates of evictions, that sort of thing. Relocation and mobility homelessness. Mobile Indigenous homeless people traveling over geographic distances between urban and rural spaces for access to work, health, education, recreation, legal and childcare services, to attend spiritual events and ceremonies, have access to affordable housing, and to see family, friends, and community members. Um, so, for this one, I can share an experience of being um, in my doctoral program and having an argument with my area core faculty around um, one particular professor who was very, um, I had proposed that I learn Spanish as my modern research language um, because I was really interested to read a lot of the indigenous uh, liberation theology that was coming out of Latin America. And she was like, nope, this is totally unacceptable. You must learn your traditional language. It's like. Um, also, why though? Because there's less than 100 fluent speakers at this point. There's no extant written documents in our language, and um, it doesn't serve any functional purpose. And I don't like, you know, when I was living in California, um, it was, you know, a two or three thousand dollar trip and two days to get home to Bella Bella to visit my parents, which is where they were living at the time. And even now, like, I can't just go home to pick seaweed with my cousins, which is what they're doing right now, because it's, you know, a 16 hour, $2,000 trip if I drive, and it's, um, you know, a $1,000 trip if I fly. Um, and that's assuming that I have access to all the time off to go and do those types of things. And so there's relocation homelessness there. Going home homelessness. 
an Indigenous individual or family who has grown up or lived outside their home community for a period of time and on returning home are often seen as outsiders, making them unable to secure a physical structure in which to live due to federal, provincial, and territorial or municipal bureaucratic barriers, uncooperative band or community councils, hostile community and kin members, lateral violence, and cultural dislocation. This is 100% true. I have very little confidence if I did try to move home to Bala Bala that I would be accepted there. I was not born there. Uh, I have never lived there in my life. And even though I am very confident and secure in my Heistrup identity, and um, I understand a lot about my culture, the actual experience of going home to the reserve would be catastrophic. Um, I often joked that I grew up in Oak Bay, um, that I was an urban Indian from the Yuppie tribe on the Oak Bay Reserve, um, which if you know Victoria is like a very, very comfortable middle-class neighborhood. It's one of the um, higher income per capita neighborhoods in the, in the country. Um, and so I am 100% an outsider if I would try to go home and live on reserve in Bella Bella. And even in Alert Bay where I grew up is, uh, it's a little bit iffy. It depends on, on how well people know me. Nowhere to go homelessness, a complete lack of access to stable shelter, housing, accommodation, shelter services, or relationships, literally having nowhere to go. And there are lots of people in the community where I work who are experiencing this type of homelessness. Escaping or evading harm homelessness. So Indigenous persons fleeing, leaving, or vacating unstable, unsafe, unhealthy, or overcrowded households or homes to obtain a measure of safety or safety to survive. Especially young people, women, and the LGBTQ2S community um, experience this type of homeless very often as Indigenous people. And 11, emergency crisis homelessness, natural disasters, large-scale environmental manipulation, and acts of human mischief and destruction, along with bureaucratic red tape. Um, so think like this, the Lubicon Cree or the, um, you know, the St. James Hydro uh, projects, um, that's the type of emergency crisis homelessness that there's um, the like forest fires, um, there's lots of times when that happens. And then climate change refugee homelessness. So this um, is particularly affecting um, the northernmost Indigenous people in Canada, the Inuit and the Ainu. Um, but I think we'll, um, you know, as sea levels rise, a lot of coastal Indigenous people um, will face uh, climate refugee status as well as, um, you know, people from traditional grasslands areas and the Great Lakes that we don't know um, what climate refugee systems will look like in Canada um, as we live into the, into the uh, future. Um, so here's another quote from Jesse Thistle, um, is just like the deep failure of Canadian Indigenous policy and Canadian housing strategies to address all of these things. Um, so I'll leave that up there for a little while. And um, I think that there's, uh, it's really important to recognize that um, indigenous homelessness is not just an experience of poverty. It's not just someone's failure to maintain their residence. Um, that there are all of these um, systemic issues. Um, maybe not all 12 affect every person. Um, and maybe that doesn't necessarily result in physical homelessness, but could definitely result in homelessness um, in the sense of like being not, um, not homeful. So um, I'm conscious of the time and I want to leave time for my colleagues, but um, when we were looking at um, the 
design of our building and how we could um, embody reconciliation and action as a faith community, um, we, we took a human-centered design approach to the whole start of the building. And so we started with empathy. Like, what is it that the community needs from us? And what is the United Church of Canada best place to do um, um, to provide for the community? And so um, we asked our community in over 100 one-on-one -on -one interviews and several focus groups, what do you need from us? What is the church best place to do? And, um, and addressing homelessness and providing secure homes was one. Um, continuing to work on reconciliation was another. Um, culturally safe space spiritually accessible programs and um, met quiet and meditative space was important. And so um, we've also worked with Indigenous consultants, including those on our team that work for us, um, to create space that has access to cultural safety in the look and feel of the building. So that, you know, I saw a really great meme a week or two ago on social media that says there's a difference between all are welcome here. And this was designed with you in mind. How often do we hear in the church, all are welcome here? Like we love to say that, right? That you stand up in my alb and say, all are welcome here. Um, and really what we've done um, in a very deliberate way with the, with the planning for the construction of this building is to say, um, yes, all are welcome here, but this, this building is designed with the community we serve and the indigenous residents that we want to house. It's designed with them in mind. And so you'll see... Um, in the renderings that you know, indigenous art and spaces and natural um, natural uh, elements like wood. Um, there'll be a lot of landscaping and, and plants. And then we have um, you know, as an acknowledgement of Coast Salish cultures, the welcome figures um, that are traditional here. So we'll um, commission one from uh, commission a set of welcome figures from a Musqueam, Squamish, or Tsleil-Waututh artist. Um, we have Indigenous procurement strategies in terms of um, Indigenous art and, and putting that into the building and making it a culturally accessible to the community. And then also an outside design of the building. There you can see our, our courtyard spaces that will be green spaces for the community to access that will grow medicines and also um, incorporating Indigenous art into the brickwork in the building. And so, um, you know, we're still... We're still in the um, end of the pre-development phases. We have our conditional development permit, and we're hopeful that we'll start with shovels in the ground in October. But um, that's a really quick overview of, I mean, I could talk about Indigenous homelessness all day, but um, it's a, a sort of a brief look at what we're doing, and we're really excited about. Again, friends, my name is Andrew Stevens-Rennie. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, share, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does go a long way to helping others find us. If you want to get in touch with Carmen, you can find out more at her website, www.salahconsulting.ca. Carmen is active on Twitter, and I'll be sure to leave contact information and links to First United's exciting project in the show notes. The Hopefulness Podcast was developed by Empire Remixed in partnership with the Sorrento Center, co-hosts of the National Beyond Housing to Hopefulness Symposium in spring 2021.